Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek and Visit Arizona. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of February 4th, 2019. On this week's episode, we remember the infamous Black Sox 1919 Chicago White Sox squad. Recently, Comedy Central's show Drunk History featured the Black Sox as Fox Sports's Kate Nolan uh, telling the tale under the influence. Uh, on this show, we'll have Jacob Pomeranke, uh, who is not under the influence, uh, from Sabre, who wrote the book Scandal on the South Side. Jacob has a great wealth of of knowledge about the 1919 Chicago White Sox. And he'll join Jim later in the show to remember the past and also highlight some of the new things that have come to light even 100 years later. Of course, we'll answer your questions at the end of the show in P.O. Sox. But speaking of Jim, let's bring him in now as baseball's hot stove is ice cold as we turn the calendar from January to February. And hello, Jim. Kind of sad for Major League Baseball when the NBA this past week steals the headlines with a major trade as we still wait to hear where Bryce Harper and Manny Machado may land. Do you think we are any closer to a resolution with either player as we are just 9 to 10 days away from pitchers and catchers reporting? Not really. It seems like uh, you know there's no real pressure with the... Uh, you know, with the offseason, with the free agents to sign by the start of uh, free agency and pitchers and catchers, even though yeah, I think there's a history of players signing after well into spring training, not doing that well. 
it seems like they might just want to wait until, you know, like we've talked about before with the Prince Fielder in Detroit when Victor Martinez uh, injured his knee. All of a sudden, they had a need for a DH and, and first baseman, and Prince Fielder was the guy. And I think, you know, maybe that's what Machado and Harper are waiting for, some kind of injury, some kind of, uh, you know, player showing up and not being in great shape to where all of a sudden a team that was out on either of them now needs them. Yeah, that might be their uh, their last resort is just kind of waiting for an emergency to make the offers go higher. Otherwise, uh, you know, it just seems like it's still the same teams over and over and over again. And then there's the San Diego Padres, which seems to have made the most noise this past week as the Padres visited with Bryce Harper and their interest in him is seen as a, quote, business marketing opportunity, end quote, tweeted by John Heyman. This effort seems to be quite sincere and they're not kicking the tires as general partner Peter Seidel, GM AJ Preller and manager Andy Green flew to Vegas to meet with Harper and Jim, you know, in this situation, to get Bryce Harper is curious to me because at the beginning of the offseason, everything that I read coming out of San Diego was that the Padres were trying to move outfielders as they had too many on their 25-man roster. But now they're really trying to see if they could sign Bryce Harper. Uh, as as it was tweeted out by Heyman, a business and marketing opportunity. And man, what a shot in the arm that would be for San Diego to sign a mega superstar. But the Padres have also made it known that they need help this season at third base. So that's why I thought Manny Machado made more sense for them to go after uh, as far as one of the two mega free agents. So how do you read the Padres' interest in both Machado and Harper? Well, I think the Padres are a little bit weird. Like overall, I think they they have some kind of... uh, Contrasting impulses that make them unpredictable. Uh, Ron Fowler, the the you know chief decision maker when it comes to money, you know he's made some strange decisions. You know uh, maybe it wasn't strange to sign James Shields to a four year contract, but then kind of publicly selling him out and trading him, which worked out really well. But you know Eric Hosmer, kind of the same thing. They had uh, Will Myers established as the first baseman, but they really wanted Hosmer for some reason, so they kind of forced him into the picture, make Myers go to the outfield, and now they have too many outfielders. Um, it's, I wouldn't count them out. And I think Harper, well, I think Machado makes more sense for them in terms of a fit, but if Machado doesn't want to go to the West coast, then, you know, they, they can't make him unless they really open up the, the pocketbooks. But at the same time, if they want to spend a certain amount of money, maybe they want to see if Harper is there because I think the Padres have been maybe one of the most anonymous franchises in baseball over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe since Tony Gwynn retired. Um, yeah, there just hasn't really been a lot of recognition for them. I think their uniforms have been pretty boring, and I think they're going back to the Brown uh, to reestablish their look, at least. You know, because I think when you think of their logo, when you think of their, uh, you know, star players, their all-stars, you really just can't really think of a, a Padre. <laughs> I think uh, uh, that does sting them a little bit, and I think that, you know, Harper would give them a very recognizable player, you know, give them new uniforms, new look, and maybe all of a sudden they're more marketable as the report was saying. But as you mentioned, they have a lot of outfielders. Harper would be better than any of them. So it's not like any of those guys would block Harper or make Harper redundant or anything like that. Harper is, is clearly cut above. They have, they have a bunch of third and fourth outfielders right now that they kind of have to juggle. But um, yeah, maybe they're just looking at a price point for a star. And if Machado doesn't want to go West, uh, they'll make Harper work somehow. Yeah. The two most recognizable Padres in their history are, Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman. Mm-hmm. 
And it's it's been a while uh, since either of them have played for the Padres. The other big name, without a resolution, that I'm kind of surprised as we head into February, is the Miami Marlins catcher JT Realmuto. It, it has been rumored all offseason that the Marlins could not start 2019 with JT Realmuto on the roster. That both Realmuto and as far as the Marlins' best interest to get the most out of a trade of moving the star catcher was to move him in this offseason. And again, we're just 9 to 10 days away from pitchers and catchers reporting. And if this doesn't get resolved soon, Jim, JT Realmuto is going to show up to Miami's uh, spring training camp Mm -hmm. and and prepare to start the year with the Miami Marlins. Uh, You know, it's been the familiar faces all along. It's been the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Tampa Bay Rays uh, have been rumored all offseason as far as their interest in JT Realmuto. But lately, it's been the Cincinnati Reds as we are starting to get specific prospects leaked or attached to rumored offers from Cincinnati to Miami. And Jim, Cincinnati, they've been busy this offseason. They got Yasiel Puig out of that weird deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers that also included dumping Homer Bailey. Uh, They got Sonny Gray and they signed Sonny Gray to an extension. They traded for Tanner Wark. Uh, the former starting pitcher for the Washington Nationals. Uh, and now they are seriously considered training for JT Riomuto. Hell, they may still try to land Dallas Keuchel, for all we know, in this offseason. Is he still a free agent? Are the Reds having an offseason that you wish the White Sox had? A little bit. Uh, I, I like the idea of adding better players to try to win more games, even though the NL Central might be the most competitive division in the entire baseball landscape. I think the AL East will be tougher to win uh, with the Yankees and Red Sox atop it. But when it comes to just five, you know, top to bottom strength with the Cubs and the Cardinals and the Brewers and the Pirates and the Reds, you know, like they're all trying to various degrees. I think maybe the Pirates are trying the least out of it because of their financial constraints. But uh, really, it's hard to see a path ahead for the Reds, but they're trying (laughs) and they're they're just doing it because they're tired of being boring and they have enough guys like, you know, around the infield, especially with Jeanette and Vado and Suarez, like, you know, they have a really good infield uh, and they have prospects in the way that can help pretty soon. So it's just a matter of just trying to see how much we talked about this last week, you know, giving these young players a, a context to see how good they are and how close they are to competing. And I think uh, the way they've done it with a lot of, uh, you know, short-term deals and acquisitions and pending free agents, um, they really haven't cost themselves much in terms of prospect, uh, uh, you know, the guys they've given up. So, yeah, I, I kind of wish the White Sox did something like that. And I think right now the, the White Sox, really their entire offseason has been based around Manny Machado. Um and there are a lot of moves that would make more sense if Machado's there, and a lot of moves that wouldn't make sense if Machado isn't there. And, uh, yeah, it, it, you can kind of say they've been held, held hostage by it, but depending on what these offers are and what you know money they're talking about, are they holding themselves hostage? You know, might be the, the bigger issue. So, um, yeah, it's it's encouraging to see a team like the Reds in this, in this you know, kind of uh, when, when tanking is so ever-present and teams are... are basically making every excuse but to add. Um, I like what the Reds are doing, and I wish more teams were like them, and I wish more teams were like the White Sox. Maybe not the specific moves they've made, like Tanner Rourke. Um, I, I don't think he would be that big of a difference maker for a team like the White Sox. And I mean, like somebody like Yassiel Puig you know, being immensely entertaining for a year, I would take that. So you know, half the moves I like, half the moves I think are just you know more forgettable, but 
overall, they're just trying to make themselves more credible, and I wish the White Sox were doing the same. I guess Yonder Alonso and John Jay do do that to an extent, but also they don't have the upside a guy like Puig has and the marketability and, and interest that he naturally draws. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of just the amount of new faces and interest that those new faces will, will spark. Our best friend of the podcast, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs, he'll be joining us in the upcoming weeks as he shares with us the Zips projections for the 2019 Chicago White Sox. But Dan released the 2019 Zips projections for the Cincinnati Reds. And Zips right now likes the Reds to fall between 80 to 83 wins in 2019, which is a pretty significant boost from where they were, Jim, mm-hmm. in 2018. I feel like if the Reds swap places with the White Sox, they could give Cleveland a run for their money in the American League Central and how they are built. But I I do agree with you. The National League Central is going to be incredibly tough, and it will be really easy for the Reds and the Pirates. Uh, Well, as we are seeing with the Pirates, they're not even trying. Um, But with the Reds to say, you know, it's not even worth making additions because we just don't have a chance against the Brewers, the Cardinals, and the Cubs. But I I like that they're – they're bucking the trend. They're going for it. So in a way, if you are a Cincinnati Reds fan listening to this, go Reds in 2019. I hope that they uh, accomplish something this off uh, from this season, from their offseason activity. We said it last year, Jim. We were rooting for the Brewers, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Brewers actually tried last offseason to make themselves better, and they were just one game away from making to the World Series. So for these mid-market teams, which if you want to have a hour-long argument about if the White Sox are a mid-market team, uh, I think so. Uh, sometimes it's worthwhile to to really break open the bank in the offseason uh, and at least try to go for it. And we'll see if the White Sox are able to do that uh, with Manny Machado, and hopefully we get resolution about that soon because then maybe the White Sox can get a similar boost as the Reds have gotten from this offseason. But speaking as far as the White Sox, the last Piece of news here, starting pitcher Wade Miley, who did pitch for the Brewers, uh, signed a one-year, $4.5 million deal with the Houston Astros. Maybe Miley had a better offer elsewhere, Jim, but this gives Miley an opportunity to pitch for another contending team uh, in the Houston Astros. Again, they're going to be one of the the few teams that people think that could make it to the World Series next year. But the White Sox do need help in the rotations. We heard from Rick Hahn on the last week's episode for the Sox Machine podcast from the Sox Fest audio highlights that he, he's trying to find help as far, as far as finding a fifth starter for 2019, but the names are starting to run out, Jim. So anyone else on your radar for the White Sox that could possibly target for starting pitching help? Well, basically the two that you know jump out to me, and maybe the only two that jump out, are Gio Gonzalez and Irvin Santana. And, uh, you know, Gonzalez, yeah, he's on the decline, and I think he walks a lot of guys, and it's kind of a, a tough... Um, you know, maybe a tough decline to negotiate when you're a curveballer and you rely so much on junk pitches and you're not finding the zone. You know, maybe that catches up to them and, and maybe that's why Gonzalez hasn't been signed yet. Santana's had some health issues and some yeah, suspension issues and uh, last two years been a little bit of a, a mess for him. But uh, I think there might be enough of a rebound in him to, uh, you know, make himself interesting for half a season. And I think he would be the kind of guy who, the White Sox might be able to flip. Um, you know, it didn't work with Derek Holland, but I think it would be kind of a similar, you know, case where the Holland signing wasn't bad. It just didn't work out. And uh, now the White Sox will are in a position to try again. And, you know, you mentioned Miley going to a contender. And I think, you know, when the White Sox are trying to pitch themselves to guys, you know, they're going to lose out to 
contenders. If it's a one-year deal and, and playing time is equal, uh, it's going to be hard for them to beat that kind of exposure for, you know, pitching for a successful team. But, you know, now that the Astros and, and other contenders seem set, maybe they can pitch themselves as the team that has innings and has a lot of them. And as Derek Holland showed, you know, as, as poorly as he pitched for as long as he was in the rotation, um, nobody really ready to uproot them yet. So, um, you know, maybe they really believe in Manny Banuelos, but um, it, it seems like Banuelos would be in the best spot to be a sixth starter and then be, you know, I guess, earn his way into the rotation. But, um, you know, maybe that's the one issue is they like Manny Banuelos a lot. And so they don't really want to overcommit to blocking him for somebody who might have more use in team control, you know, in the years to come. Yeah, we'll get some resolution or at least get a sneak peek because I've never seen Manny Benuelos pitch before. So I I still reserve judgment on how I feel about Manny Benuelos and his chances of making the White Sox starting rotation. But I'd still like the White Sox to at least find somebody. Maybe it would be one of those minor league deals, right? Or they mm-hmm. get an invitation to spring training. Maybe they get a, a boost in salary if they make the squad. Uh, out of camp and start the year in the starting rotation. Who knows? Maybe this fifth starter spot is just warming the seat for Dylan C sometime in 2019. But that's all the latest rumors in the offseason. Again, the hot stove is pretty cold at the moment, but hopefully this upcoming week it will fire up again, and we hope that the Chicago White Sox are involved. But coming up next, Jim sits down with Sabres' Jacob Pomeranke to discuss the 100th anniversary of the 1919 Chicago White Sox next on the Sox Machine Podcast. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you are willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever by searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value. SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget, plus every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. I use SeatGeek all of the time. I have the app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I found to shop for tickets, especially buying White Sox tickets or if you want to go see the Chicago Bulls or the Chicago Blackhawks. There's a bunch of concerts coming to Chicago as well. I always go to SeatGeek first to buy tickets because they have the best value and the best prices for those concerts and sporting events. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners get $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event, we have the tickets. Joining me now on the Sox Machine podcast from the Society for American Baseball Research, he's the chairman of Sabres Black Sox Committee, Jacob Pomeranke. And Jacob, first question, I'm going to grill you here. Given that this is the centennial of the Black Sox scandal, is this your time to shine? 
Well, thanks for having me on, Jim. Yeah, you know, this is uh, the 100th anniversary, uh, and, and I think there's there's never going to be a brighter spotlight on the uh, Black Sox scandal than there is in 2019. It's uh, not even baseball season yet, and already there's been a lot of attention uh, paid to the scandal, and I think as the as the year goes on, uh, we're going to, you know, get a little bit closer to the uh, World Series anniversary, and, and yeah, it's going to be a pretty bright spotlight this year, I think. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty good press when drunk history covers the scandal and and i watch it and i assume you watch it too yeah i did uh, watch the show it was a lot of fun i uh, had a blast listening to uh katie nolan drunkenly narrate the uh, black Sox <laughs> scandal or uh some version of it at least um so yeah no it's always uh fun to see you know this is my favorite story in baseball history the most fascinating story in baseball history to me and to see it uh you know in, in kind of popular media is always uh, always a treat now how did you get into it because i know you're a braves fan yeah, you know, I grew up in Atlanta, um, but I've been a baseball fan longer than I've been a Braves fan. And, mm. and you know, I've always been into the history of the game. And, you know, when I was in uh, high school, I read the book Eight Men Out uh, on, a, on a family road trip. I just picked up the book, and I was so engrossed that I didn't even, uh, you know, realize that we were already uh, at, at my grandparents' house until uh, I had already finished the book. And so, um, yeah, I just, I've been fascinated by the story, um, you know, ever since I was 16. I just, you know, once I read the book Eight Men Out, out, I, I had even more questions than I had answers. And, you know, I've just, you know, started digging into some of those questions about the Black Sox, about the World Series and, and the players themselves. And, you know, I've just never stopped 20 years later. Now, how do you feel about eight men out? Because obviously, you know, from what you just said, it's very influential. At the same time, there are a lot of inaccuracies and uh, or at least, you know, things that weren't known at the time. And uh, Drunk History seemed to pull the eight men out version. And as you mentioned, some version of it. Uh, how do you deal with, you know, being engrossed by the book, but also it kind of driving the popular narrative and having so many things or at least a number of notable uh, aspects of it that turn out not to be true? Well, for those of us who study history, you know, especially with this story, Eight Men Out is kind of the elephant in the room, right? It's it's the one that kind of uh, perpetuates all the uh, old myths, and it, you know, the, most people get into the Black Sox story by either reading Eight Men Out or watching the film, and so you know, we're continuing to have to you know educate people on kind of the real story and the, and the the real backstory behind what happened in 1919 and and the aftermath. Matt, too. Um, so, but, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of a double-edged sword where, you know, people learn about the Black Sox scandal in the 1919 World Series through the book and the movie. Um, but unfortunately, the the story that they do learn um, is is fairly inaccurate. And, and we've done a lot of research in the last 10 or 15 years to kind of debunk a lot of those old myths. And, and so I think that's one of our goals uh, with our Saber Research Committee and this uh, symposium, 100th anniversary symposium that we're putting on in the Chicago Chicago History Museum in September, um, you know, one of our goals is to kind of shine a light on the old stories, debunk the old myths, and, and let people know kind of, you know, what really happened. Let's go into a few of them, just so uh, listeners of the podcast can, well, actually, their friends as these things come up over the course of the year. Uh, first of all, I think, you know, thinking about back to the Drunk History episode, uh, and, and also just kind of very popular conception or misconception of Charles Comiskey is that he was super cheap, uh, I guess, uh, unusually uh, stingy for the era and players were rebelling against him, uh, you know, in, in low salaries and getting stiffed on bonuses. That wasn't really the case, was it? 
No, it wasn't. And and that's uh, really the probably the number one misperception of the Black Sox scandal is that Charles Comiskey was kind of the arch villain of the entire story. Certainly, there were a lot of things that he did wrong, and there were opportunities that, that he and other baseball officials had to kind of end the uh, the gambling epidemic that was kind of uh, you know running rampant through baseball at that time. Um, but uh, you know, we we now have some accurate salary information on all the players in 1919, and so you know we can take a look at how much Eddie Seacott was making um, and compare it to the rest of the players in the American League. And, uh, you know, the reality is Seacott was the second highest paid pitcher in baseball behind Walter Johnson, which mm. was, you know, pretty commensurate with his talent level. And and so, you know, as far as, you know, whether these players had reason to uh, gripe about their salaries, certainly, you know, all players in the reserve clause era, um, you know, were not making as much as maybe they could have at the time. But this idea that Charles Comiskey was underpaying his players so much, um, you know, the the, the line uh, that Elliot Asinoff used in Eight Men Out was that, you know, these guys were the, the best players in the game and they were getting paid as much as the worst. Um, well, that's not true. And I think if you talk to uh, the Connie Max Philadelphia A's players, uh, who really were the worst team in the league back then, uh, they were making much less than the White Sox players. Um, and so we can kind of compare and see what Eddie Seacott and Chick Gandle and Shoeless Joe Jackson and Buck Weaver were making um, compared to the rest of the players in baseball. And the reality is the White Sox had one of the highest payrolls in baseball. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just uh, the Eddie Collinses of the world who were getting paid well. Eddie Seacott was getting paid well. Buck Weaver was one of the highest paid players at his position. Um, you know, and so I think uh, this idea that Comiskey was kind of this Scrooge character, uh, you know, who and he's the reason that the players fixed the World Series, and he's the reason that they were so disgruntled and poorly treated, um, is you know really it, it casts blame, um, you know, in in one very specific area and kind of scapegoats Charles Comiskey um, for this entire scandal. And and the reality is much much more complicated. Um, the you know the players themselves were involved in in gambling and betting on games and, and, you know, just like players on every other team were. This was something that uh, was going around baseball at the time. And so uh, the White Sox just happened to get caught, I think, is is the real uh, problem. And, you know, they, they did not realize that baseball had changed after World War One, and there was kind of this reform movement going around with prohibition and everything else. And I think they did not realize that uh, baseball was going to bring down the hammer on them once they got caught. Um, other players had been fixing games for years, like Hal Chase, and, you know, they didn't get caught and they didn't get punished. So I think, uh, you know, th th that kind of goes toward, uh, you know, what the culture of the game was like. And I think that's, you know, it's really important to understand kind of that context and that culture, uh, you know, when you're discussing the Black Sox scandal. And it seems like that if Seacott uh, and Gandal and, you know, the eight men out were rebelling against anybody, it might have been inside the own club, their own clubhouse with uh, Eddie Collins and Ray Schalk and, and that faction of it. Seemed like a fractured clubhouse that just one half of it didn't know what the other was doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, there was a lot of dissension in that clubhouse. There were a lot of cliques uh, between, you know, very strong personalities, um, th you know, throughout the team. And so uh, that was definitely, you know, an issue that the White Sox faced. And uh, I believe Eddie Collins had said something about uh, he always thought that, uh, you know, kind of clubhouse cohesion was an important factor in a winning baseball team until he got to the White Sox. Mm. Um, and then he realized that it didn't matter how much you hated your player, the player standing next to you, uh, if the team 
team was good enough, uh, they were going to win. And so, um, you know, yeah, that was certainly an issue in the clubhouse and how the players kind of related to each other. Um, but again, I think, you know, looking back at kind of the big picture, uh, taking kind of the 30,000 foot view of this scandal and what was going on, it's impossible to understand the Black Sox scandal without, you know, realizing just how rampant the gambling was uh, in the game at that time and and understanding that players were betting on their own games all the time. I mean, this was not an isolated incident um, fixing the, the World Series. I mean, just a week before the 1919 World Series, Ty Cobb and Trish Speaker um, were betting on their own games and fixing a, a Tigers and Indians game. Um, this was a, a little bit of a mini scandal that didn't come out until a decade later. Um, but this happened a week before the World Series began. And so... This was something that was going on all over the place. Uh, there were gamblers that had reserved sections at, at Major League ballparks. Fenway Park was notorious uh, for hosting gamblers and, and you know people betting, fans betting uh, on on the game on the field. I mean, this was something that went on in the open, um, and so you know the players were betting on games, the officials, uh, the executives for the teams and the front offices, they were betting on the games, um, you know, and so this was this was the culture of baseball. You, you may, Everybody made a little bit of extra money uh, betting on games. And so I think it, it's not uh, hard to go from that to maybe throwing some games, too. Um, everybody was just trying to, you know, make a little bit of extra money, I think. And that's uh, you have to kind of understand that context to realize, what, you know, why the World Series was thrown and what happened, uh, you know, with, with what the White Sox were doing. Yeah, and you mentioned the gamblers of Fenway Park, and I remember when I was doing the 1917 Day-by-Day series and the White Sox and Red Sox at Fenway and the gamblers' riot trying to get the game canceled and just how well-concentrated and how physical of a presence they were, you know, both you know, figuratively and literally at the ballpark, just jumping out there trying to uh, you know, stop a game from being official. I mean, that was just, I didn't realize the extent of it, just how, as you mentioned, out in the open it was. Yeah, the the gamblers' riot in 1917 at Fenway Park is one of the most, you know, uh, just ludicrous stories that, that you can ever think of. You know, gamblers actually charging onto the field to try to stop a game, get a game called because of the rain, uh, so they wouldn't lose their bets. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, this made major headlines in Boston and Chicago because um, the White Sox were the opponent uh, in Boston that day, and and it's just, you know, like you said, the stuff was just happening right out in the open uh, all the time for years. And years before the 1919 World Series, and baseball really didn't do anything about it. Um, you know, they had their opportunities to kind of clean up the game, to get rid of the gambling element, um, you know, and, and to try to, you know, do something to, uh, you know, change the culture of the game. Um, but at every opportunity, baseball, you know, turned a blind eye, um, including Charles Comiskey, you know, and, and he was not alone in that. Um, but, you know, Comiskey was a very powerful figure in the American League and, and throughout baseball. And so he, he did have his chances to kind of help clean up the game. And, and he, you know, refused to take those chances and, and, and do anything about it. And so by the time the 1919 World Series rolled around, you know, this was just part of the game. And this was something that, you know, you know, the White Sox players had known other players that bet on their own games, that fixed games, and no one had ever gotten punished for it. Um, 
And so I think, you know, when it came time to play the World Series and, and you know, they got the idea to make some extra money by losing it, um, I think, you know, they just they did not foresee that anyone would ever get caught, let alone get punished. Um, and so I think, that, you know, you just have to kind of go back through the years and realize just how, you know, infiltrated gambling and baseball were. And, and that's something that uh, as we, you know, enter the 2019 season and Major League Baseball is getting uh, closer and closer uh, tied to gambling today in the 21st century that's something that uh, you know you kind of makes you wonder uh, what the what the relationship between baseball and gamblers are gonna, is going to be like now so going going back to the the misconceptions and and perhaps uh, fabrications of the World Series the lefty Williams story being threatened or his family being threatened by gamblers what's the story behind that one well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, in Eight Men Out, there is an actual uh, assassin, a hitman, um, in the book and the movie, who was supposedly hired by Arnold Rothstein to go approach Lefty Williams and, and threaten his life and threaten the, the life of his wife. And uh, Elliot Asinoff in the book Eight Men Out actually gave him a name, Harry F. Hmm. Well, later on, uh, Asinoff revealed that he had made up that character. It's entirely fake. Um, and and that character uh, was was put in at the request of his lawyers uh, for copyright reasons, so that if anyone else uh, told this story and used the name Harry F, um, that uh, Asinoff might you know have an opportunity to sue them <laughs> for copyright infringement. And that was uh, you know again kind of a a roundabout way of of, of telling the story. But uh, but yeah, so this this character, this hitman character, was completely made up by Elliot Asinoff, but it's it's, it's treated as if it's real. It's treated as if, you know, Lefty Williams really was threatened. Um, and, you know, it's certainly possible. I mean, this was the days of Al Capone in Chicago. It's entirely possible um, that, you know, one of the gamblers might have sent somebody to, to threaten harm to Lefty and his family. Um, but the reality is we have almost no evidence for that whatsoever. Mm. And, and there's a, a secondhand story that was told by a neighbor uh, 40 years later in, in The New Yorker um, in which he said that, you know, at some point in the 1930s, he had heard from Lefty and his wife that uh, that, that this, you know, the gamblers had sent somebody to threaten him um, before game eight of the World Series. And so that's really the only evidence we have is a secondhand story told 40 years later um, from somebody who really wasn't even there. And, and so, you know, between that and Eight Men Out with this fictional hitman character, uh, somehow this thing has, has gained new life and, and you know people think of this as, as what really happened. And it shows up in, in the film Eight Men Out, and I think once you see it in the film, you know, a lot of people just treat it as, as historical fact. And the reality is that character was completely invented, uh, and Elliot Asinoff admitted that. So um, it's it, you know, just one of the many unfortunate um, – you know myths that that you know historians are trying to uh, fight back against and and uh, debunk you know and and let people know kind of what the real story is and unfortunately this one uh, this one seems to live on and and eight men out is is the big reason for it and one other one that comes to mind is the grand jury testimony uh, and the fact that it was missing and uh, when I first read about it, I thought that was kind of a huge deal when it came to trying to piece together and, and make sense of a uh, uh, what turned out to be kind of a messy trial situation. But it turns out, at least you know from my understanding, that they were able to piece together the, the grand jury testimony just fine. 
Yeah. So, you know, the, the kind of the, the myth of the grand jury confessions is that they were stolen from the prosecutor's office. And, you know, in the film Eight Men Out, they, they kind of speculate that Arnold Rothstein and maybe Charles Comiskey had, you know, joined forces to uh, lift the evidence and, and help out the players somehow at trial. And the reality is there, there was a theft uh, from the prosecutor's office, but it had nothing to do with the, the Black Sox, actually. It, it turned out to be um, just kind of some political shenanigans in Chicago. Um, the 1920 was an election year, and the uh, outgoing state's attorney for Cook County in Chicago was voted out. And uh, between you know, the election and, and when the new state's attorney came into the office, um, some of the uh, the old associates in the office uh, just removed some of the files from the Black Sox grand jury investigation, including uh, transcripts of Shoeless Joe Jackson and Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams grand jury testimony. Um, but there were other copies of this. And so when the theft was discovered, they just recreated uh, the testimony using the uh, courthouse stenographer's notes. Um, hmm. This is, you know, pretty standard in, in, you know, the legal realm. And so uh, the theft really had no bearing whatsoever on the actual trial. And so the idea that this was kind of some dramatic scene where, you know, the prosecutors lost their evidence and, and subsequently lost their, their case against the Black Sox. And that's the reason they were, you know, found not guilty. I mean, it really, the, the, the stolen confessions, the transcripts have, has nothing to do with it at all. And so it was just, it, it was really just kind of a, a, a scene that got dramatized for the film uh, more than anything else. And, and unfortunately, you know, again, it's just one of these myths that this trial was kind of, you know, beset by, by corruption. And, you know, this is the, the Al Capone era in Chicago. And, you know, people are, you know, thinking this is kind of, it's just the shady courtroom shenanigans or, you know, maybe the prosecutors were inept. Um, but the reality is this was, you know, kind of typical Chicago political shenanigans. Um, and it actually had nothing to do with the trial whatsoever. They just read it, the, the testimony right back into the record. So hmm. just, you know, yet again, another one of those myths that just kind of lives on. Yeah, while we have you on this platform and you're, and you're speaking to White Sox fans, anything else, any other battles you're fighting against popular history with actual history that you'd like them to know? <laughs> you know, one of the other uh, major things, I, you know, I think the, the, the salary information, which, you know, comes from the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. We've got the contract cards uh, that show, you know, actually what the players were paid in 1919. I think, you know, that's probably the number one misperception. And if you take anything away from this conversation or any uh, anything else that we're going to be doing this year uh, through Sabre, um, I think that's the most important thing to remember is, is, you know, the players were not underpaid and that really had nothing to do with, you know, why they through the World Series, um, yeah, but one of the other you know major myths that uh, that I don't think people realize is um, you know people kind of say that the Black Sox kind of hung their heads in shame and after they were banned for life, you know, they, they just, uh, they refused to talk. This was one of the, you know, most embarrassing incidents in baseball history and, and they were all ashamed of, of what they had done and everything else. And so if you read the book, Eight Men Out, you know, the, the author talks about how, you know, none, he encountered resistance uh, whenever he tried to interview any of the surviving Black Sox players. Um, and even some of the Reds uh, would not talk to him. 
And the reality is um, a lot of the players did talk about the World Series, and they actually weren't ashamed at all. They were actually pretty defiant. Uh, the, the, the eight men out were pretty defiant about what they had done and kind of proclaimed their innocence. And, you know, we now have over 100 interviews uh, that have been discovered involving, you know, players from both teams in the 1919 World Series. And, you know, the Internet has really helped a lot in being able to find some of these long-lost interviews in small newspapers around the country and where these guys lived and you know, so we know now that, you know, unfortunately, you know, Elliot Asinoff was not able to talk to too many of the players, um, but a lot of other writers were. And so I think, you know, again, we just have this misperception of, of how these guys lived their lives. And, and the reality is a little bit different. And I think, you know, now we've got some new information and, and you know, more information that's coming out there and more research that's that's being discovered every day. Um, and, and I think that's uh, something that, you know, again, just people don't really realize uh about this whole scandal there's you know a lot of a lot of what you know is wrong unfortunately and and so it's it's nice that you know we are going to get this opportunity and this kind of bright shi- uh, bright spotlight uh, in 2019 to be able to kind of you know maybe debunk a little bit of these myths and and let people know kind of what really happened so with the current research now are there any threads you're pulling on that uh you know any leads to uh, kind of fleshing out the picture a bit you know, one uh, one area that we're really uh, finding a lot of inf- interesting information these days is about the gamblers who were involved. Um, everybody knows about Arno Rothstein, and he showed up in in popular media like Boardwalk Empire and, and things like that. And so Rothstein's name is pretty well known these days. Um, and and you know maybe people that are kind of into the story or have read Eight Men Out know the name of Abe Attell, who was the boxing champion, who was kind of his right hand man. Um, but a lot of other people don't really realize just how many gamblers were involved in fixing the 1919 World Series. I mean, there were at least eight or nine different syndicates in different cities, um, you know, stretching from Boston to New York to Pittsburgh to New Orleans to wow. Chicago to St. Louis to Des Moines, Iowa. Um, you know, we've got gamblers in all of those cities that were actively involved in the the plot, uh, kind of a multifaceted plot to fix the World Series. And in fact, uh, when when Abe Attell refused to pay the players after game two um, and, and the players decided, well, we're getting double-crossed, we may want to start winning some games, it was a group of gamblers from St. Louis and Des Moines who raised a pool of money to pay off the players uh, hmm. again and, and get them to put the fix back on. Um, and, you know, Arno Rothstein really had nothing to do with that. And so that that did not make it into Amen Out. Um, that's something we've only discovered in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, um, you know, digging around into their lives. You know, we now have information about Sport Sullivan, the, the Boston gambler, you know, and, and he was uh, really kind of a, a, a big man in the gambling world for two decades in the early 20th century. He was just as big as Arno Rothstein. Hmm. Um, but he doesn't get much attention because – only because he was dead by the time Elliot Asinoff began researching the Black Sox scandal. And so he didn't really have an opportunity to tell his side of the story. And I think that's one of the big missing links to the whole, you know, Black Sox scandal is Sport Sullivan's version of this story. We know Abe Attell's version of this story, and by extension, Arnold Rothstein's version of this story. Um, but we don't know Sport Sullivan's version. And, and by most accounts, Chick Gandal had approached Sport Sullivan first uh, to fix the World Series. And, you know, that, and that was something where... Um, 
you know, another that's another myth that the the gamblers were the ones that you know found the players and they were the ones that initiated the fix and kind of you know as as the story goes they kind of seduced you know the the undereducated players that you know they didn't know what they were doing and they got in over their heads mm-hmm. the reality is the players were the ones that actually initiated the fix and they're the ones that actually approached the gamblers um and sports sports sullivan was a major part of that in boston he knew all the players and he was a bigwig um and so but we don't have his version of the story you know he died years earlier and he didn't talk to elliot asinoff the way Ava did uh, so we've got Ava Tell's version, but we don't have another gambler, and so that's something where uh, we would love to be able to, you know, dig up, you know, more information on Sport Sullivan's life. He now has a biography in the Saber Bio Project that you can read, and you can actually see a, a photo of him that nobody's ever seen before. Hmm. Um, before we were able to dig it up, and so. You know, this is something where we've got some really great people in our Saber Research Committee who are, you know, digging these things up and and finding out information about all these, you know, bit players uh, in the scandal, you know, and on and off the field. Obviously, the players in the World Series, and you know, that's something that's very important. But off the field too, with all the gamblers and all the other people that were involved, uh, we're, we're learning a lot more about those people now too. So perhaps the most popular question uh, from White Sox fans and maybe others, you know, others who have seen, you know, Eight Men Out, Field of Dreams, uh, and, and you're very close to it. Your Twitter account is uh, at Buck Weaver uh, and, and also his uh, handsome, uh, his handsome portrait <laughs> is your image. Uh, and, you know, Shoeless Joe, too. And, and, you know, all the kind of, you know, back and forth over their roles and, and you know, their reinstatement attempts and, and, and you know, their, their pleas of innocence. Where do you stand on their bans and, you know, their hall, in, in the case of Shoeless Joe's Hall of Fame case, uh, given what you know and what you've been able to find out about their involvements? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my friend Mike Nola, who runs the BlackBetsy.com website, and is probably the, the best Shoeless Joe Jackson expert in the world, um, you know, he has a, a great phrase, and, and he says that, that Shoeless Joe is much more famous outside the Hall of Fame than he ever would be in. And, and I tend to agree with that. I think, you know, if Shoeless Joe Jackson had been inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1951 or something, um, you know, we'd remember him about as well as we remember Zach Wheat. Uh, you know, or Harry Heilman, you know, two other great hitting outfielders uh, from that era. Um, but, you know, Shoeless Joe has, has kind of had an opportunity because of the ban. He's he's kind of had an opportunity to grow into a legendary figure, uh, both in baseball and in pop culture. Um, and I don't think Shoeless Joe would be nearly as famous today as he would be, um, you know, if not for the, the Fixed World Series and if not for his lifetime ban. And so um, that's something that I think keeps his story alive in a way that it doesn't for a lot of other baseball players of his era. Um, and so that's something that, you know, if, if he were to get into the Hall of Fame, I think it would be a great thing in terms of, you know, his his deserving play on the field. Um but the reality is, I mean, you know, he, his legacy is, is far greater today uh, because of, you know, what happened in 1919 than it would be otherwise. And and so that's something that, you know, if, if MLB were to finally, uh, you know, clear their names or at least say, you know, the, 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 the lifetime uh, ban is over just because they're no longer living and we no longer have jurisdiction, um, I think that would be something where, uh, you know, it, 
we'd kind of, you know, there'd be some celebration among Jackson supporters and Buck Weaver supporters. Um, and, you know, Jackson may get into the Hall of Fame. And then after that, it would be over. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, may not care nearly as much uh, about Jackson's story and, and Buck Weaver's story. I think that's something where, um, you know, because of the band, they, their, their legacies are still alive in a way that um, a lot of other players are not. Especially with Weaver, just because he was, a, you know, a decent shortstop slash third baseman in his day, but you know, I, I think it would have taken really a, a hell of a run in his thirties to get in the conversation of any kind of enshrinement. So he probably would have disappeared. Yeah, you know, I I, I love Buck Weaver's story. I, I'm obviously uh, very sympathetic uh, to his case. You know, as, as evidenced by my Twitter handle, uh, which was I was fortunate to snag uh, many years ago. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think you know Buck Weaver's got a very difficult case to make for the Hall of Fame, um, given the trajectory of his career. I'm, I'm not sure that even if he had been given those few years back in the 1920s uh, to keep playing, I, I'm not sure he ever would have gotten in. Uh, to the Hall of Fame, but um, you know, I think Eddie Seacott actually had a pretty good case um, and has a pretty good case, uh, you know, for a Hall of Fame induction. And I think um, Happy Felsch is kind of one of the great what ifs too. I think he, uh, if he had been allowed to continue his career and, and play out, you know, the rest of his days, um, I think there's a very good chance that Happy Felsch would have made it into the Hall of Fame too. Um, but uh but yeah i think uh you know again i uh, unfortunately mlb has been pretty reluctant to um you know, to, to reopen these cases. And every time there's a new commissioner that gets hired, you know, there's, there's always a flurry of attention. And so in 2015, when Rob Manfred, you know, succeeded Bud Selig, um, there was a lot of attention paid to the Black Sox and also to Pete Rose, which, uh, you, you can't untie the Pete Rose story from the Black Sox story anymore. They're, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of intertwined at this point. And so every time there's a new commissioner, there's always a little glimmer of hope that maybe this time, you know, this commissioner will uh, will finally, uh, you know, give a little bit of justice uh, to to the players that whose degrees of guilt were, were lesser. And I think you can definitely say that about Sheila Show and, and about Buck Weaver. Um, the degrees of guilt were not nearly the same as they were for Chick Gando and Eddie Seacott. Um, but. But yeah, it's a you know it's a story that lives on, and I think that's part of the reason. That's part of the you know the myth um, you know the, that you know the Black Sox players kind of hold the, the mythology that they hold in in popular culture is is because of the lifetime ban, and you know we're all still a little bit fascinated by this story. There's still so much you know about baseball and American culture that you know this story kind of represents, and and so I think you know again as we as we learn more and more, and as new information continues to come to light, you know. Know, it still continues to fascinate, you know, fans and, and historians and everybody. I want to thank you for uh, for your time and, and, and your brain and, and all your knowledge on this. Uh, before I let you go, I just uh, anything you want to plug. I know there's the event in Chicago. Um, you know, we can we can link to that. We can link to any. I guess uh, there's the scandal on the South Side uh, Saber uh, book covering it that we can link to. Anything else that uh, you want re- uh, listeners and readers to know about? 
No, I think those are the two main things. I think uh, the symposium in September is going to be a lot of fun. You know, we're going to make a whole weekend out of it. Uh, in addition to the actual symposium at the Chicago History Museum, we're going to have a walking tour of downtown Chicago. It's baseball history. We're going to go to a White Sox game. Uh, probably going to have some type of uh, pub crawl of uh, Prohibition-era joints that are still around. Um, you know, book signings, including our Sabre book, Scandal on the South Side. So it's going to be a great weekend, September 27 through 29 in, in Chicago. And so uh, if you're interested in the story, uh, the 100th anniversary is only going to come around once, and I don't expect any of us to be here for the 200. So uh, this, this is the chance to this is a chance to find out. And you're on Twitter at Buck Weaver, where throughout the year, whenever things come up, whenever key dates happen, whenever uh, stories come out, uh, you will be there to point them out, uh, highlight them, straighten them out, whatever it needs doing, right? That's right. I'm always uh, available to ask questions. Anybody is interested in learning anything about the Black Sox or any other area of baseball history, I'm always interested in talking more. Yeah, I think you proved over the last uh, half hour or so that uh, you know what you're talking about. So thank you for your time, and uh, and, and good luck with uh, getting the word out and correcting the record. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you about it later in the year. Great. Thanks for having me on, Jim. A quick word from our sponsor, Visit Arizona. Okay, we survived the brutal cold in Chicago, but thanks to the thaw, some of us are dealing with flooding issues and the sky is just constantly gray and it's slushy outside. It's terrible out there. And I don't know about you guys, but the idea of heading down to Arizona to see the White Sox at spring training sounds great right now. Arizona has so much to do and see. All of the stadiums are within 50 miles of Phoenix, so you can follow the White Sox around or stay at one of the many resorts in Arizona. Bring the family along as they have many water parks, horseback riding, and other activities that all ages can partake in. Plus, the food options are great, and if you are an adventurous beer drinker like I am, you can enjoy visiting different breweries all around Arizona for spring training facilities like Four Peaks and Goldwater Brewing Company. And you can't go to Arizona without checking out the Grand Canyon and Monument Valley, too. Best place to start your trip to Arizona is to visit Arizona.com slash spring training. They have great ideas on places to stay, eat, drink, and visit. So make sure that your first place that you stop booking your trip to Arizona this spring is at visit Arizona.com slash spring training. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine, and helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash machine, And I am rejoined on the show with Jim Margulis. Jim, great interview with Jacob about the 1919 Chicago White Sox. Very fascinating stuff. And for those that are not Saber, I'm sorry, not Patreon uh, supporters, I highly recommend that you do become one because there's some great uh, nuggets as well about the Black Sox that are only available to our Patreon subscribers. But the first question that we do have from P.O. Sox comes from Mark Hope, who is a one of our Patreon supporters. So thanks, Mark. And Mark, Jim, he's asking you, Jim, should we read anything into the creation of the Goose Island in right field 
in relation to the long-term viability of the stadium. Any general thoughts about the Goose Island? None immediately. I think for the time being, it's a way to make money and a way to hedge against low attendance and lower deck. And you only have a half-filled lower deck. You can't afford to sacrifice some seats. And, you know, between the licensing and, and maybe the extra cost that goes into those seats, you know, acquiring tickets for them and maybe the extra money people spend while sitting in that section, maybe it, you know, offsets each other. But um, I, I think that's really all it means at this point. Maybe it's changes the landscape of the outfield a little bit. We've talked about it uh, uh, here and there about just how, um, and I think Grant Brisby, for years ago, he wrote a piece in SB Nation saying that the White Sox outfield was the most boring place to hit a home run because there's nothing that exciting about it. Like there's no second deck, there's no water feature, there's, there's nothing really to clear or denote the distance of a homer. You just have to know from watching games and games to kind of get an idea of how many rows constitutes how many feet. So I think when it comes to the outfield, it does maybe change the landscape of it a little bit and, and maybe gives them something to hit, <laughs> I think, going to deep right field. <laughs> uh, so I like that idea. But otherwise, it doesn't hold a lot of appeal to me. Um, yeah, I'm not really a heavy drinker at a ball game. I, I wouldn't spend extra money to get, you know, I guess, uh, you know, seat in-seat service. You know, that, it's kind of nice, I guess, but I also don't mind walking around and stretching legs and, and seeing what's around. So... Uh, I guess it's more or less a shrug to me, except for maybe what it means for the craft cave and what it means for fans who, you know, before enjoyed a pretty good deal of, of getting there early and getting some seats along the fence or on the patio. Yeah, that, that seems like it's closed off based on the renderings, and I don't really, I'm not really a fan of that. Yeah, for the rest of the craft cave, though, it doesn't sound like there's going to be too many changes. Uh, for those that are interested, you could buy season tickets in Goose Island. And the rumored pricing for these season tickets, the first three rows of Goose Island gyms, it also includes the row that's on field level behind the chain link fence, uh, is $8,000 for a full season ticket package. So about $100 a game. Mm. And then the rows after the first three are $4,000. Asking one of our friends from the 108, they spend about $2,000 in the section over uh, for their season tickets. Uh, so quite more expensive in the Goose Island uh, for those that are interested in buying season tickets. But hey, it's a leather chair. You get a little monitor. You get to plug in your phone. There's a USB outlet in there. And you get a $20 credit for every game. So you can get yourself a beer and a hot dog. So if you are intrigued by it, you can buy season tickets for Goose Island. Yeah. Well, I guess I should say uh, with the, you know, maybe the... Uh, Going ahead, you know, when when talking about new stadiums and, and kind of speculating on what will happen, it's like Goose Island wouldn't be a terrible corporate sponsor name for a ballpark mm. if it came to that. If if Goose Island's big enough to do it and if the White Sox are uh, still appealing to name you know, their stadium for and, you know, everything like that, you know, assuming current trends, have, you know, if the White Sox get good, if uh, the new stadium happens, if Goose Island is still a major player, that would be better than guaranteed rate in terms of a name. Very true. Very true. Our next question continues to steam uh, as far as about the Goose Island in right field. And the question comes from Pete Chapman. And Pete Chapman is asking you, Jim, after the Goose Island news, what is the next advertisement edition at the ballpark you'd like to see? Uh, well, I think, you know, thinking 
uh, of the developments that have happened, there's been the fundamentals deck in left field, you know, area for kids, uh, which I think is good. Then you've had the weird lounge uh, along the left side and the uh, uh, club level. Um, that, uh, what's the status of that, by the way? Have you been there? Uh, were the, you there last season? The club level. The lounge. Revolution Lounge, is it? The, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. It's, 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 it's fine. It's nothing special. Yeah, the one time I was there, or the couple times I was there, it just seemed more like a waiting room, like they hadn't really invested <laughs> money in it yet. Yeah, to, pretty uh, much. Make it something. So, uh, so there's that, and then you know you have the Goose Island, and I think that's like a, kind of two beer-centric drinking things in a row, and uh, which is you know a major reason to go to games. So I think if they want to get away from that, I'll go to my old. Uh, I you know I think the one thing that jumps out to me in terms of my personal enjoyment would be a coffee area, but uh, especially <laughs> you know when you have something like the Craft Cave and, and a good idea for you know hanging out, getting there early waiting out rain delays. Yeah. I, th- I think if you're looking to spend time at the park, but just don't want to drink, you know, that might be the next thing to look at. But, uh, aside from that, um, you know, the other idea I've long supported is I missed the museum at the park and wouldn't mind seeing, you know, a hall of fame or something along those lines to honor the history besides the statues in center field, which I think are two, uh, I guess, uh, uh, 1950s and later, you know, they kind of ignore the first half of White Sox history. And, and I would like to see that honored a bit, especially Luke Appling, you know, like he's just gone largely forgotten and uh, it'd be fun to see him, you know, and, and guys like Red Faber and Eddie Collins, who is often overlooked, you know, for Nellie Fox in terms of all time second baseman when Collins is one of the greatest figures of the first half of baseball history. It'd be fun to see something like that, and and whether it's a corporate tie-in or just you know the White Sox doing it themselves, uh, those are the two things I'd like to see. And if they could somehow market it, great. A Dunkin' Cafe would be interesting, where you maybe Dunkin' Donuts to come in and build a little cafe area where you can get your Dunkin' coffee. I don't know if you're a big Dunkin' coffee fan. I was just thinking of like who are the big coffee sponsorships to make your dream a reality, Jim? Maybe yeah. Starbucks. Uh, Intelligentsia, uh, I think is uh, a name that's gotten outside of Chicago. Um, you know, they have, they have a presence, um, you know, you know, maybe big enough to do something like that. Um, there's that, I haven't been to the coffee place in Bridgeport. I've seen it a couple times. I haven't been able to stop in yet. I think it's Jackalope. Um, okay. but yeah, if they went smaller, that'd be kind of cool. Like along the lines of revolution, um, you know, being able to open up to multiple levels of, you know, tiers of brewing from, you know, major macro brewers to, you know, more local names. I think that's been a cool thing to do for the, uh, for the White Sox, you know, going from, you know, Miller now to Goose Island to Modelo to Revolution, like having a whole bunch of different tiers of brewing. And, and, and you know, so I I'd hope that if it came something like this, they'd be able to open things up to smaller, more local things as well. I mean, like, you know, Beggar's Pizza. Yeah, it's pretty good pizza and not that big of a name, but they're, but they're there. And, uh, and I, I think it's great for fans. So, That'd be my hope. I, I think if they're going to do something, you know, I guess naming something, creating a feature, carving a, carving up a bit of the park for it, uh, that would be my yeah, the best thing for me. No, I I like that idea. Something new. It's a lot better ideas than some of the new things that are happening, like the Tampa Bay Rays going cashless. I, I don't like that idea, and the yeah. Washington Nationals having a, ba- a brand new backpack policy. I, I I fear that the day would come that Major League Baseball is just going to adopt the NFL bag policy and all bags are going to have to be clear and they're going to have to be specific that the team only sells and you're going to have to buy 
one of those backpacks, which makes it a pain in the neck if you are working downtown and you decide during the weeknight that you want to catch a White Sox game where you have to go home and drop off your stuff before coming to the game. That would be a headache. So we'll see if the White Sox follow any of those new trends uh, that are starting to happen around Major League Baseball. But Goose Island, uh, we'll see how it looks on opening day if it is ready by opening day. Our next question for P.O. Sox comes from Gukas Leogito. And Gukas is asking, Jim, in honor of your upcoming prospect week, what prospects are you predicting will surprise us by being call-ups in 2019? Well, uh, I can. I guess I can share my bold prediction from the uh, from the post-Sox Fest meetup at Buffalo Wings and Rings, uh, where I said Tyler Johnson has a big chance to kind of be this year's Ian Hamilton, coming from relative obscurity and... You know, having the stuff to make uh, you know three level jump in one season. So I guess that's my bold prediction for the year. I'm feeling pretty good about him, and and that's the name that jumps out immediately. Otherwise, I think when it comes to uh, center field, with it not being resolved yet, and and having you know Adam Engel and John Jay and maybe Larry Garcia, there is a there is room for Luis Pasabe hmm. to you know I, I guess make a run at it. Um, you know maybe they do the same service time thing, and so. They don't want to call him up until next April if he's not going to be ready. If he's not going to, I wouldn't count on him being somebody who uh, is ready by May. Yeah, I think it'll take him some time to adjust and and, but I can see him. You know, things clicking for him being a switch hitter. Sometimes those developments happen a bit later, and all of a sudden, you know, everything's on the same page. And uh, you know, he's a good defensive outfielder, has enough power to be twenty twenty. You know, power speed to be a twenty twenty guy with good defense in center field. I could see him being appealing, and by July we're having the same conversation we had about Eloy, and so maybe he doesn't come up because of service time. But I, I like his odds. You know, I like him as a player. I think more than a lot of Sox prospect lists do. And so, um, you know, should he put it all together? He got the health issue behind him. Played a, a nice, full, healthy season last year. Started to figure out Double A by the end of the year. I could see him making the strides to where we're maybe clamoring for him to get to the big leagues, whether he does, mm. you know, get there or not based on service time is a different issue. But I, I think those are my two guys who aren't being talked about as 25 man roster types that could eventually make themselves. So I like the Luis Wasabe choice. Uh, for those that support us on Patreon, you learned last week that Luis Wasabe was Jim Callis's seventh White Sox player uh, prospect in his top 100 prospect list. Uh, so Luis Wasabe is actually pretty close to making MLB Pipeline's top 100 prospect list, which I think would have really surprised a lot of White Sox fans. Uh, I, I like that pick. The difference between Basabe and Jimenez, though, Jim, is that Basabe, the White Sox are already burning options for Basabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I, true. I, I think that's why we we could see we could see Basabe join the White Sox in July and August, and those. White Sox fans would be like, well, how come we didn't see Eloy Jimenez last year then? It's because the White Sox are already burning uh, 40 man, uh, or because Masabi's been in the 40 man now, this is the second year. They've already started burning options. Same thing with Mike Adolfo. Uh, so Adolfo and Basabe, uh, yeah, they're, I don't, I don't know if you want to say that they're wasting options for the White Sox, but. Uh, the clock is ticking on those two, so hopefully both of them have a big year and join. I, right now, the only one that I'm confident in as far as the prospects that will join, I, I do think we'll see Sebi Savala sometime in 2019, Jim, just because with injuries. You're going to see the catches. Maybe we'll see Zach Collins uh, sooner than we thought in, in 2019. Who knows? Yeah. 
No, I, I think Sebi is a good choice just because of numbers. And uh, I was thinking more because uh, there are a lot of relievers, and in, in especially with uh, uh, you know Zach Birdie, depending on what he looks like in spring training, and, and Ruiz and Hamilton. You, know, you have a lot of guys who are prospects and, and could crack the list. And I think really when it comes to that fifth starter spot, and somebody like Jordan Stevens who could make the you know, spot start or appear in the bullpen. You know, there are some guys, but I was thinking like further off the board, you know, guys who might force their way up by being better at a position of need. And I think, you know, Basabe is kind of somebody who fits that mold of somebody getting a chance on purpose rather than just out of desperation. I like it, man. I like it. And terrific questions this week, guys. Thank you so much for submitting a question to P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at South. We are at Sox Machine. That's a dollar on me. We're at Sox Machine. <laughs> Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And again, if you enjoy the podcast and you enjoy our content on SocksMachine.com, sign up to become one of our friends at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where you guys get an opportunity to receive additional content every single week from the podcast more questions that you can answer directly to our guests in which they answer them, more PO Socks questions. Jim also does additional writings for our PO socks. I'm sorry for our Patreon supporters. So again, if you like more content from us at socks machine, go to patreoncom slash socks machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast. Again, huge thanks to Jacob Pomranke for joining the show to share his thoughts and insights of the 1919 Chicago white Sox and Look forward to the upcoming weeks in February as we start previewing the 2019 Chicago White Sox season. As before you know it, pitchers and catchers will start reporting around the league on February 13th and 14th. And we'll have that schedule released for you guys so you know which preview, which position previews we'll have in the upcoming weeks for the Sox Machine podcast. But if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to our show in a variety of ways. One is through iTunes. We're also in Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.